Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Continuing with our series in spiritual warfare, Neil Anderson has said this, The iniquities of one generation can adversely affect future ones unless those sins are renounced and heritage in Christ is claimed. And quite possibly, the sneakiest scheme of the devil is how he can keep us unaware of sin. Satan knows that if we're left unaware of certain sins that we're committing, that we can't cease from our wrongdoing. The wages of sin is death and destruction. And the devil realizes that if we were blinded to sin in our own life, then we'll continue making detrimental life choices. You see, the devil is able to mask sin through heritage. And sin is a disease that can be passed through family lines like any other disease. Suppose a father had a disposition for heart disease and he raised a son who didn't pay attention to his daddy's health. When the son became an adult and entered his mid-40s, he experienced a mild heart attack. Only when the doctors inquired into his family history was he forced to actually talk to his dad and son and then confronted him with a choice to change his eating, exercise, and lifestyle habits. And Tommy Hayes, who is the author of Free to Be Like Jesus, says this, when we go to see the doctor, the first thing they do is take our medical history. They want to know the problems we are having now and the problems that we have had in the past. But they also want to know the history of problems in our family line as well. And as well we know, medical science has discovered God's truth that we are affected by the lives of those who have lived before us. We are affected by the acts of our forefathers, our ancestors before us. And like it or not, and whether we think it is fair or not, sin affects and infects everything and everyone around us, in our generation and in the generations to follow. Have you ever wondered why some families tend to have recurring patterns such as divorce, uh, numerous setbacks, financial ruin, and phobias? That's right, all of the above. And even criminal behavior and genetic predispositions. But is this really true? Are certain character traits really passed on through bloodline? Or is there something else that is going on? Now we're going to discover this this morning. That people are linked to their, um, their family line 
much closer than, the, than we probably realize here. A spiritual illness through many generations. And we know what that illness is. It's sin. And the only way we can treat and cure the underlying problem is to identify the particular sin or sins and repent from them and make a resolution to cease from committing them again. Amen? Amen. We want to talk about generational sin. What is generational sin? Turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, looking at verses 6 and 7. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And what we read here is that inherited sin is called generational sin. John Ortberg says the kind of sin occurs when unresolved problems and sins of one generation tend to pop up again and plague the next generation. And the next one, and then the one after that as well. The Lord said that this would happen to his people if they continued in their transgressions and failed to seek forgiveness for their sin. And we read this in Exodus 34. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, is merciful and gracious long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. The words of this passage are not an isolated occurrence in the Bible. For they can be found in other places. And these words are repeated elsewhere. I think it's safe to say that they must be significant. Would you agree? And probably worth taking a closer look at. So turn to Exodus chapter 20 verses 5 and 6. We're going to have a good old Bible drill today. Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. It says, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. And then in Numbers chapter 14, we talk about, or it talks about the Lord being long-suffering. What is that? That's being of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means, again, clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Are we seeing a pattern here? Sin does not just go away with one generation. It is 
passed on. The Lord said it is passed on. So how do we remove those transgressions in that family line? Or in any line for that matter. What does Exodus 20 and the other passages above teach? The term curse is not there. Understand that. The word curse is not there. Nothing is said about Satan or demons. It was God who would punish the disobedient. God is warning of judgment and punishment upon those who practice idolatry. The impact and influence may be felt upon their offspring to the third and fourth generations. And that is up to his great grandchildren to give you reference. So the punishment only falls upon those who hate God, who choose to perpetuate the sins of their ancestors. Are you following with me? Jeremiah 32, 18. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands and recompensest the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. And then 19 says, great in counsel and mighty in work. For thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men to give every one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Amen. It's not saying that children will be punished for the actions of their fathers in verse 18. Because in verse 19 it states that God gives everyone according to his ways and according to the fruits of his doings. Those who continue in the same iniquities as their fathers will receive just punishment. Generational curse proponents teach that according to Nehemiah chapter 1, Jeremiah chapter 14, uh, Daniel chapter 9, that a person needs to repent of the sins of their predecessors. In these passages, the sins of the fathers are acknowledged, but also the sins of the present generation that participated in the sins of their forefathers are confessed. Their prayer is that they will not continue in the same sin. It's important to note that God is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and in truth and that he's forgiving of iniquity of our transgressions and of course our sin John said if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if people will just ask the Lord to forgive them, then he will forgive by the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, the key to receiving forgiveness is to simply ask for it in all sincerity. Amen? Amen. 
If we refuse to ask for God's forgiveness, then we will remain guilty of our crimes. And it is also an indication that our heart is unrepentant and that we will continue in our sin regardless of what the Lord desires. We read that God does not clear the guilty, but visits their iniquity on their children and grandchildren for generations to come. And this is the depiction of generational sin. It kind of sounds like the Bible is saying that a person can be punished for the sins of his parents or forefathers. So this concept can seem a bit confusing. But bear with me. The principle presented here is best understood by discussing something called original sin. And this is what my dissertation was on. Original sin. Which is the first sin committed by Adam and Eve in the beginning. The Apostle Paul stated in Romans chapter 5 verses 12 and 14... Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. In the Garden of Eden... The tempter approached Eve and enticed her to eat the forbidden fruit. Adam partook as well, and as a result, mankind was evicted from paradise to live in oppression from the curse of sin. The tendency to sin, which was present within Adam and Eve, and that tendency was visited on the entire human race by means of inheritance. We've inherited that sin. When a believer commits sin, he's not literally committing the exact same crime as demonstrated in the Garden of Eden. But when we partake of sin, yes, we're partaking of forbidden fruit, but it's not the exact same tree. Paul said that death reigned even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. So what was inherited through the centuries was the tendency to sin and not some form of punishment. When an individual commits sin, that person is acting from his own free will. And thus experiences the natural consequences of his own behavior. Human beings are not punished for the exact same sin as Adam and Eve. They are punished for their own individual transgressions. Exodus 25 we read, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Hate me. Notice how the Lord will punish specifically those who hate him. 
Some translations say those who reject him. But God allows the effects of sin to be visited only on the individual who commits the sin. So the key to understanding generational sin is this. Sinful behavior can be learned from parents and grandparents and so on. And once it's adopted and enacted, sin becomes an individual matter and leads to suffering the natural consequences of our own wrong choices. Individual sin leads to individual consequences. But often that sin has been learned from an elder. An example of generational sin can be seen in the family line of the King David. In 2 Samuel 12, 9 and 10, the Lord spoke to David through the prophet Nathan and said, Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. God said the sword would never depart from David's house. And it never did. His son Absalom rebelled against him and was killed in battle. And his son Solomon committed the sin of spiritual harlotry by worshiping the gods of his foreign wives. So David's rebellion and sinful tendencies were passed on to his children. And each child suffered for his own individual mistakes. The sword came into their lives. Generational sin is sometimes referred to as a generational curse. And like I said, the word curse can seem a little harsh. For we tend to think of a curse as an irreversible pronouncement. But however, we need to not allow this term to discourage us and result in feelings of hopelessness and condemnation. Because the Bible teaches us that we can reverse that curse, can we not? Individual responsibility is what we need to be thinking of. And to understand that, Ezekiel chapter 18 says it best. And you can turn there now for reference. Ezekiel chapter 18 verses 1 through 32. But as you're turning there, I want to make it very clear that when we suffer for sin, we're not suffering for someone else's transgressions. And we're not being punished for our parents' sin. God didn't say that he visits the punishment of the fathers on the children. He said, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. The Lord visits the iniquity and sin upon the children and grandchildren. So what the Lord was saying is that the successive generations would undoubtedly repeat the same sin or sins of the forefathers. 
A definition of generational sin is this, the natural consequence of ingrained behavioral patterns that are passed down from one generation to the next. Generational sin can be viewed as learned behavioral patterns. And this would include spiritual behavior or our spiritual warfare. In Ezekiel chapter 18, Ezekiel shared how the Israelites were using a lame proverb in an attempt to excuse themselves from individual responsibility. The proverb stated, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, they declared, our fathers have sinned and we are unjustly being punished for their sin. We must therefore blame our parents for our problems. The Lord admonished the people. The soul whose sin shall die, in verse 4. He told them, you are not being punished for your parents' sin, but for your own sin. And the Israelites repeated the same kinds of sins as their forefathers. And were thus suffering the same consequences of their forefathers. And likewise, believers can repeat the same types of sins as their parents and grandparents and suffer the same consequences. But keep in mind that they're not being punished for the sins of their forefathers. Because there has to be a way in which they need to break that pattern. The first insight into the pattern of people is that people are different, are they not? People are different. That was pretty brilliant, wasn't it? Bold statement. We're different, right? People are different. So how were Nicodemus and the woman at the well different? The first way is the most obvious. Nicodemus was a man and the woman was a woman. A few years ago, Time Magazine shocked the world when they actually admitted that boys and girls might be born different. Novel concept. Earth shattering, right? But that was a key difference between Nicodemus and the woman at the well. And especially in those days. Men just didn't approach women in Jewish culture. It was so extreme that there was a group of Jewish rabbis that were called the bruised and bleeding ones. Do you know why they were bruised and bleeding? It's because they held to an extreme teaching that a Jewish rabbi couldn't even look on a woman who wasn't his wife or daughter. And even then, he couldn't look on them when they were outside. So, what happened when one of these rabbis was walking down the street and a woman was coming at him from the other direction? What were they to do? Duck out of the way? Bury their head in the sand? He would close his eyes. And when he closed his eyes, 
Naturally, what do you think he did? He ran into things, right? He did. Apparently, he did that a lot. And that's why he was bruised and bleeding. I've known guys to run into things when a woman passes them on the street. But it's never from closing their eyes. But even aside from those extremists, regular law-abiding Jewish men never approached women in public. And if a woman approached them, they would never enter into a conversation with them. So the differences between men and women weren't just natural in that society. They were cultural and they were extreme. But that wasn't the only way that Nicodemus and the woman were different. They were socially different. He was a brilliant scholar. He was a Pharisee, which meant that he was a supremely dedicated biblical scholar. He knew the scriptures so well that people would come to him for answers. But he wasn't just a biblical scholar. He was a ruler of the Jews. That meant that he was also part of the Sanhedrin. And to be a part of the Sanhedrin meant that you had to know culture and government and politics. <clears throat> Excuse me. Here we go again. I get this every once in a while. <clears throat> Devil's trying to attack. Bring it on. <clears throat> Just by being a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, we know that Nicodemus had to be a brilliant scholar. He was the upper crust of the society. He could rub elbows with scholars and artists and heads of state. He knew which fork to use when it was time to eat. He was an elitist. But not the woman. The woman was as common as he could be. She did the work of herself. It wasn't that she just wasn't part of the elite class. She didn't even have a class at all. Notice the time that she came to the well. Verse 6 says that she came about the sixth hour. That was either around noon or around 6, depending on whether John was using the Jewish or Roman time. But if it was noon, nobody came to draw water in the heat of the day. So she would probably have been there by herself. But if it was 6 p.m., nobody came to draw water that late in the evening. So she would have been by herself. So typically, the ordinary common ladies and the servants of the town would come to draw water from the city well in the morning. They would come as a group. It was kind of a social event. I think that's where we get talking at the water cooler. It was a place for them to gather and talk about what was going on in their life or talk about social outcasts, the, the kinds of social outcasts that would go to the well by themselves about the sixth hour. Nicodemus was a scholar. She was a social outcast. 
And not that she didn't deserve it. Because there was another reason Nicodemus and the woman were different. Generational sin will continue to plague our life and even trickle down as far as our great-grandchildren and beyond if we fail to stop it right now and reverse that curse. When we are growing up, we often look at the previous generation and see patterns of unhealthy behavior and sin and say to ourselves, I'm never going to be like that. But what happens? We get caught in that same trap until somewhere along the line, somebody in some generation makes a courageous decision to change. When we hear about the reality of generational sin, we might feel helpless. But I assure you that we're not helpless. We're only incapable of affecting change if we remain ignorant of what's taking place in our life. However, we've now been made aware of this need for self-reflection, have we not? We need to consider our life and our family history and think about the mistakes and sins that continually are being repeated. And once we identify them, we have an opportunity to confess those sins and break the curse over our own life and the life of our family. Breaking a generational sin or curse comes through confession and repentance. We have to confess our own wrongs. Perhaps we're repeating the same sin of our forefathers. However, we are individually responsible for our own behavior. We must confess our own wrongs, and then we must repent of them. Because repentance, we know, is the complete turning away from sin. And a good example of confession and repentance of generational sin can be observed in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. You just make note of it, but listen closely as I read what Nehemiah declared. He says, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great an awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who you love and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you have commanded your servant Moses. Now, did you notice something familiar that Nehemiah said? He reminded the Lord of his words in Exodus 34, which we read a little earlier. He stated, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. So Nehemiah basically declared, Lord, I remember your admonition. 
and about my generational sin, but I also remember you saying that you are a forgiving God. Nehemiah didn't just confess his own sins, but he confessed the sins of all the children of Israel and the wrongs of his father's house. So what he confessed was the generational sin of his relatives, parents and ancestors, and he did this in order to lead the individuals who were present to consider their own lives and to make a commitment to cease from the sins of their forefathers. If they would halt their own wrong behavior, it could break the pattern of sin for future generations. And that is our job as parents and grandparents because we are certainly in the thick of things when it comes to spiritual warfare. You may not have children in your lives and they may be older, but they are still susceptible to the wiles of the devil. And so we continue to be on guard. In Leviticus, we see another example of this generational sin. The Lord counseled his people that if they ever departed from him and ceased to worship him, that they would suffer hardship. Not only would the parents suffer, but the children would as well. Leviticus 16.39, the Lord emphasized how the children would waste away in the sins of their fathers. But he also presented a plan for forgiveness and restitution, which we see in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 40 and 42. And that's referenced in your notes this morning. But it says this, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they also have walked contrary to me, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, I will remember. I will remember the land. See, the Israelites were informed how they must repent of both their own iniquity and that of their fathers, just as we observed in the example found in Nehemiah. The Lord said that if they would not do so, he would remember his covenant and the land, meaning that he would restore his people. In breaking the pattern of generational sin, we can prepare a family tree and try to identify some of those reoccurring generational patterns. And then after finding them, we can reflect on our own life. If any generational sins have become manifested in our own life, then we should confess them and repent. And there are probably some things that our ancestors have done in the past that are affecting our lives right now, which we may not be able to identify. If any of us suspect this to be the case, then I would suggest saying a general prayer like Nehemiah. Notice how he didn't list each and every sin. He just simply stated that the children of Israel had sinned against God. 
So perhaps we need to ask the Lord to forgive the sins of our ancestors that have been passed through the centuries and to forgive any of those sins that might have entered into our own heart and our life and, of course, the lives of our children. But having said all that, I want to encourage you this morning to break that curse of sin. And if you know of any sins that you have committed or in which you are currently living, then confess them to the Lord. You don't need to confess them to me. You don't have to confess them to anybody else. Confess them to the Lord. Go to the Lord. And if you can identify any sins in your life that are the result of learned behavior that's been passed down through the generations, then confess those transgressions as well and seek forgiveness and then turn away from them. This is Sunday School 101. This is what we're teaching our children. But then the children see us in the home and we're not walking the walk. We're just talking the talk. If you do not know Jesus Christ, please keep in mind what you've heard this morning about how you're living with the curse of sin that was passed down through the ages and from our forefather, Adam. Romans 6.23 tells us the wage of sin is death. And the end result of sin is spiritual death. But, and it's a big but, that curse can be broken in your life even this morning. It can be broken. And it's found in the forgiveness through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Dave, come and lead us this morning. Good stuff going into a new week. Those of you that were here yesterday, embrace this and sing it loud because I heard from many who said they were so excited to be part of this fellowship. Let's stand and sing this. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Oh, I've been washed in the fountain. Lord, for our time here this morning. Bless us as we leave and go out into this world where we can be a light for you, that we can show others the love that you have for them. And it's never too late, Lord. You always allow us to come back to you. So whatever sin or iniquity that's in our lives, we ask you to purge it from us now as we confess those to you even this morning. And Lord, for those who do not know the loving nature that you have for us, Lord, I pray that they do not leave this building without coming to know you and to, know, to love you 
to honor you. And Lord, that one day we will meet you face to face and we'll hear those beautiful words. Good, well done, good and faithful servant. Again, thank you for our time here today. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. Have a great day in the Lord today. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.